Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson, and we're excited to be recording this episode in Austin, Texas, during the Association of Corporate Counsel's 2018 annual conference. This is our second year recording episodes at the ACC conference. We've got some great conversations coming up, so be on the lookout for those. With us today is Amy Devonich, Corporate Counsel with Keller Williams Realty. Amy's also lives here in Austin, so she didn't have to travel as far as some of us to come to today's conference. Amy, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. I have been in-house for three different companies, all in different industries, and they've all had very small legal departments, which has been nice because I get to be very close to the business and get to see how it's actually operating and be able to help with with the decisions that the business is facing. So most of my work is as a generalist, so it's kind of a wide gamut of work, but a lot of that ends up being highly transactional due to the nature of of what's needed on a day-to-day basis. Gotcha. Well, and I think it's interesting. I don't remember the statistics, but a lot of lawyers are in small legal departments. In fact, I think the last I saw, almost half of in-house counsels were the only in-house counsel. So you're not alone in being in a small group. And actually, it's because we have a lot of generalists that are juggling that I was really excited about the topics for today's podcast. Instead of a substantive area, what we're going to do today is talk about the top five questions that every GC gets answered. And Amy, you've got some creative thoughts on how to deal with these common questions. So that's what we're, we're going to get into. Um, let's go ahead and talk about the first of the commonly asked questions. And that really involves the question of urgency. So in this hypothetical, Amy, someone comes and says, Amy, Amy, uh, it's the end of the month. Here's a 20-page contract. We've got to get it approved and signed today. How do you handle that kind of that kind of approach? Well, I do want to start by saying that I, my approach might be different than what some have due to the fact that we are receiving services. So I'm not on the side where we're actually needing to sell the deal and close it by the end of month, in which case I would have to take a different approach for the company's sake. But because we're receiving the services, usually my first question is, do we actually need to sign it? And when do we need it by? Um, because I'm usually told the price will double if we don't uh-huh. sign the contract by that day. And being <laughs> that my husband is in sales, I'm, I'm very familiar with such tactics. Yes, that's right. And so, and I assume your folks aren't buying used cars, but they're, they're hearing some of those practices. Exactly, yes. <laughs> Bargain basement right. pricing is usually a red flag. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I agree. Most reputable folks don't say it's doubling next month. <laughs> However, the panic salesperson's trying to come up with tactics. Exactly. So, so it sounds like you're helping provide some perspective on, is this a deadline for our company or is this a deadline that the salesperson's putting on it? That's exactly right. So usually my first questions are are trying to figure that out. If it's truly a 20-page contract and it's complex, then I start asking questions as to the need for the urgency before we start running around and trying to make it happen. If it's a pretty simple transaction. It's something that I'm, I'm better off just putting the time in and getting it done rather than asking questions, then I'll take that approach. Gotcha. Do you try to set some expectations with business folks so that they know what kind of turnaround they can get out of the legal department? 
I think we all try to have some sort of SLA. So every company I've worked for has had an SLA, but uh, for the most part, the business doesn't really seem to enjoy having any sort of turnaround longer than one business day. So I think the expectation is to try to do it as, as quickly as possible and to always be in line with the business and understanding the actual priorities and so that you can juggle everything as best as you can. And you use the term SLA. I think that's service level agreement. That's right. Um, but some of our listeners may not be that familiar with that term. So can you give us an example of an SLA? Sure. So I guess the term SLA, I imagine, came more from the, the technology side of things, which is referencing uptime and downtime and if there's a failure and how they respond. And so in the legal context, for me, it's more of how many days does it take to flip this contract and be able to get it signed? And sometimes the business doesn't really think about the fact that it's not just my time, but it's also if I had to redline it, then it goes back to the other side and then it comes back, it goes back to the other side. And then the signers on both sides also might need to review it as well in addition to legal. So there's a few things that are happening during that time period. While they think it might just be sitting on my desk the whole time, there's right. actually a, a few different processes that need to take place before the document's fully executed. Right. And I imagine when they come in, they expect that you're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs waiting for them to come. You probably have a few other things going on. There's usually well. a few other things going on, and, yeah. and I think that's a big part of it, is, is educating the business on what you're actually needing to do, and why you're needing to take that time to review the contract. I think sometimes they view it just as words on paper, don't really think about what those words are, and how that really could impact them or the company. And so, understanding that it's not just legal terms, but that contract specifies what they think they're receiving from the other company, and once they start realizing that and I start asking questions to make sure it's in line with what they actually need, that's usually when people buy in and realize that, okay, it's worth you taking the time to review this because no, I didn't realize I was needing to either pay up front or no, I didn't realize they were going to own my IP or I, I didn't realize these things about the contract and so please take your time to be able to figure out if there's anything else I've missed. You know, that's such a great point because I think business folks get so involved in thinking about their contract, they don't step back and actually either read all the terms or what I tell them, you know, of course, I don't get involved to litigation is it not only has to be intelligible to you, but a jury made up of fast food workers and gas station tenants need to be able to understand what this contract actually says. And when you put it that way and make them actually explain, what are we buying? What is this price term? I think you're adding value beyond just some legal analysis. You're actually helping make sure the business deals one that makes sense for the company. Right. And every company I've worked for, and I think every company should implement this if they don't, has an expectation that the business submitter actually read the contract and agrees to all the terms from their business perspective. And so that adds in an element of responsibility. But I've had a few situations that you look at and chuckle and realize there's no way you could have read this. Um, for instance, I had a contract that was actually written in another language and then popped into freetranslation.com <laughs> and I read the contract and my my head was spinning because all of the parts of speech were flipped. I didn't understand if a sentence was saying that they would do something or would, they would not do something. And so you're like, I'm sure you read it if that's how it reads to me. <laughs> wow. No, that's good. And I think that's a critical role. And that role may not always be done in a uh, one business day exactly. uh, turnaround <laughs> where you're not even in the right language. No, that's great. Well, let's go ahead and move to our second frequently asked question of in-house counsel. Uh, you indicated sometimes people come and say, hey, 
Amy, we need you to join this meeting and give us legal advice, uh, but we're not sure what the meeting's about, and uh, we don't have time to talk about it ahead of time. And I, again, I don't think you're alone in that. I think a lot of people are, oh my gosh, this call could end up going badly. Let's get legal counsel to join in and listen in, and that way we'll be protected. Um, and that's often not the, the reality. Uh, tell us a little bit about how to deal with those kinds of uh, panic calls. You know, I think that's one of the things I actually enjoy the most about my job. I really like the frantic calls and needing to jump in and think on my feet. And so I think I'm a little bit weird in that way and that that's something that I actually appreciate the most about my position, kind of the, the fire drill aspect. But it sure would be nice to be able to prepare. And I think sometimes people don't realize that there are things that I would do to prepare. It'd be no different than if you were, you know, writing a doctor and saying, I have a rash, is it okay? But you never sent them a picture and they never got to see you. Well, they, they couldn't really give <laughs> right. great advice. And so sometimes there's context that I would be much better at providing legal advice if I had been able to gain going into the meeting. But I'm okay with just walking in, peeling back the onion, asking the questions. And uh, that's something that I think as you work with individuals more and more often, they start to realize the information that you actually need in order to give that guidance. I think that's great. I mean, I think you know, the other thing that I think it's even if last minute, it's probably better than not being involved at all. Exactly. You appreciate being even considered because sometimes uh, businesses run into the issue where they, they aren't even part of the equation at the beginning and only when things have gone awry. So yeah. I don't mind being part of the conversations, but, but sometimes it can be a little hectic. And I've worked with attorneys where they kind of panic when they're thrown into a meeting and they start asking around, does anyone know what this is about? What do I need to do to prepare? And I've just learned I'm okay with, with just going with it, walking in and figuring it out from there. I think that's good. And it sounds like you use something of a Socratic method in terms of uh, just asking a bunch of questions, right? Yes. Lots of questions, I find, is the best way to, to do any project with the business where they maybe haven't thought through everything. And so as you ask questions, they are often figuring out the answers as they're answering. And, and then you usually get where you need to be by the end. Yeah. Having gone to law school, I think that's one advantage that, you know, we as lawyers can bring because we know how to, you know, even if you don't know all the facts, you can start asking asking uh, enough questions to figure out what's important. So it's a good way to, to move things in a direction and make you look smart. So that's right. a win, it's a win-win there. <laughs> or buy time, either one. Right. No, I, I, think that's, uh, I think that's good. All right, let's talk to question number three, which is another interesting one. You know, someone says, I'm just buying something online. Does this even go through legal? Can I go ahead and buy it? I certainly don't talk to a lawyer before I order Amazon at home. How do you handle those kind of inquiries about online purchasing? We're certainly moving to a digital age where I think we're seeing more and more B2B e-commerce, uh, more and more online purchasing, a variety of things. So what, what, what's your tact on that? So this is something I think happens almost every day. Um, I'm asked this all the time in some different capacity as far as how they can move forward without using legal because they deem it to be a small transaction or a simple transaction or a transaction that they don't think is negotiable so they don't know why I need to look at it. And so what I always tell them is if you're needing to agree to anything, it's a contract. and 
do you have signature authority to sign contracts for the company? And I find that that phraseology has helped them realize, <laughs> like, oh, wait, no, I don't, so I can't agree. And so you're saying even clicking a box means I'm agreeing. And I say, yes, clicking a box means you're agreeing. If you're ever doing that, it has to come through legal. And so once they've heard that, I think it resonates with each individual, but it's hard to have that message across the company for everyone to understand until they hit that purchasing stage themselves. It, it's worked out pretty well with talking to people and them understanding the need to do that and realizing you know, they might be comfortable clicking to buy things on the Apple store for their own purchases, but it's not the same thing when they're agreeing to buy software on behalf of the company. No, I think that that's makes a lot of sense. Now, have you, even when, when you do it as a legal department, have you managed to negotiate or change some of the terms of those click wrap agreements? Very often. And so that's one thing that, that I've tried to explain to them is while they might not think it's negotiable, often the terms are negotiable. If we have enough leverage and they want our purchase bad enough, then we have ability to negotiate the terms or to choose to go with another vendor that will negotiate with us. And so that's one of the biggest reasons that it's worth it for it to come through us because we often will end up with much better terms than they think they needed. I think that's a really great tip because I think even other in-house counsel a, don't realize how much is being done online without their knowledge, and B, tend to view those as non-negotiable boilerplate. We either click and take it or we don't. And so I think the message that, no, we can negotiate and, you know, and, and remember, if you're in-house counsel, your company is big enough to have some buying leverage. You're not an individual ordering at Amazon or at the Apple store at home. This is a company that's going to do some, some buying and you know, lawyers put those terms in, but those are negotiable just like a traditional written contract. Exactly. And especially with these click wrap agreements, they almost always say that the terms are subject to change upon the side who drafted it and discretion. And so then it makes it even more concerning that we're signing those agreements. And so often when I am able to negotiate the terms of an agreement like that, then the terms are staying as what we negotiate them with. And so that's something that makes it even more powerful moving forward. That's great. Have you had any luck? I know when I review some of those, they are, in my mind, particularly burdensome in the area of limitation of liability, waiver of all warranties, your remedy is limited to a refund, even if as a result of our software being lousy, your entire business is crippled or all your funds get transferred to, you know, to Asia. Um, have you managed to get some of those types of restrictions changed? I have, definitely. So, you know, often most companies are willing to talk about their limitation of liability and to give carve or to give a fair indemnification provision when you actually start talking with them and saying you're not going to move forward unless they give you that. So I think everything is up for negotiation if you have the power to do it in that transaction. That's awesome. I really laugh when I got question number four, when I saw your, your list, because I will say as an outside counsel, this one drives me bonkers. So uh, the question is, hey, Amy, just wanted to let you know, we forwarded the email you wrote to the other side. It was really well written. We wanted to make sure they understood our position. So other than screaming into the night, what, what, you know, how do you handle, how do you handle that? Well, it's funny, I had told you that that was one of my thoughts for this podcast, and the very next day it happened. So wow. it, it happens more often than you would think, and usually they're not actually telling you, hey, I forwarded it. It's when you look through the chain and you see your email a few down and you realize, oh gosh, why did that happen? Wow. And so I think the first thing to do is just address the situation and continue to provide advice in, in that particular instance, but then to have 
kind of an offline either conversation or email where you say, hey, you really can't forward emails that I send to you, even if you think they're not sensitive. I'm giving you advice so the other side doesn't need to be or shouldn't be ever knowing what I'm telling you. And so um, making them realize without making them feel too bad about it that um, there's a reason that we have that uh, privilege and that we have the ability to talk to each other in that way. I, I think that's so true. I think a lot of folks just don't understand the concept of privilege. Maybe they understand it to the point of, oh, it's a good idea to talk to a lawyer. She can't go, you know, telling everybody else about it. But they don't realize about waiver, you know, that it can be waived and that you cannot simply forward it. And if you do, you've, bro- you've broken that privilege. Right. And even more importantly, in my day-to-day context, because you know, not everything does end up leading to litigation, or you sure hope it doesn't. A lot of it is relevant for contract negotiations, because I'm trying to develop a partnership or a renegotiation of some, uh, to some extent, and the other side finding out my position is really not ideal. And so that's the situation that I'm in more on a day-to-day standpoint. No, that's a great point. And right, I mean, and you're going to be negotiating legal terms, but it's a little like saying, well, they're at 20, we're at 10. You know, I suggest going back at 12 and figure we'll end up at 15. Well, if, if that's the advice, you would never, in a pricing context, send the other side your bottom line number. But when your clients forward your email about your position on the the liability waiver or venue or whatever, the payment terms, they're doing the same thing. They're basically giving the bottom line rather than the actual, you know, proposed negotiating position. That's exactly right. So at dinner uh, the other night, uh, I was talking to one of our guests that will be on the podcast tomorrow about this. They work for a bank in South Carolina. And what they said, which I thought was brilliant, it's the first time I've ever heard of this, they've got a hidden code embedded in the attorney's signature line that will not allow the email to be forwarded outside the server. Oh, wow. So I, I, I'm looking to get more details. I just learned about it, but I thought that was a brilliant solution. She said they had the same issue with people taking emails from the bank's attorneys and forwarding them outside, even when they put do not forward at the top, that they've actually got a server that will recognize this hidden code and block it. That's and really so, interesting. You know, it's I've never interesting heard of that. technology. So I, I want to find out more about that. But, you know, but it, it just proved that you're not alone in having that issue. And I've had clients, even in a litigation context, where I will analyze a legal issue for my client and they'll think, oh, this is great. The other side needs to know that this claim stinks. And they'll forward my analysis to the other side. You know, they say, you wrote it so well. I just wanted them to know they were going to lose. I'm like, you, you can't do that. Number one, you know, I wanted to present that at the brief. I don't want to give them three months to think about it. And number two, now they can come and ask about all our other conversations because you probably waived privilege. And I've even thought about, do we have to try to recall it as an inadvertent (laughs) disclosure? But that makes my client look really bad. And I'm alerting the the court and the other side that my client not really listening to my instruction. (laughs) So it's a really awkward topic. And And I think it's so common. I think a lot of people have that problem. So I think that's good advice. And I think it's a reminder to all our listeners, this is going to happen. And since you know it's going to happen, think about ways now to stop it before the really bad email gets forwarded. The one talking about, you know, your assessment of liability of a board of director member, something else that could really be damaging. So I think that's a, a really important topic. All right. Well, number five is a question that says, oh, Amy, we've been sharing our confidential information with the other company for months. Weren't we supposed to get something signed first? Ah, uh, yes. This is one of my favorite questions. Um, so 
a lot of this just stems back to not understanding the purpose of an NDA or what you would need it for. And sometimes it's because they think someone else got it signed and they just assume so because they jumped into the conversations midway. And other times it's because they just didn't even think about the confidential information being shared. And so I think a big part of that is education, making sure that people that you know are in positions where they'd be having those initial conversations are aware of the need for an NDA and also just making it a less burdensome process. Creating an NDA and a way to get it signed that is easy, it's short, it's simple, it's mutual, something that they're comfortable pushing onto the companies to be able to get it signed quickly rather than feeling like it's something that's getting stuck in the legal process for a while and impeding their ability to move forward. Yeah, no, I think that is, that's another area where people have only a vague notion that something needs to be done and don't really understand the purpose. So I think there's clearly an education role there. And as a plug for a future podcast, we're actually going to have another episode where we talk about how to draft an NDA and components uh, to put in it. Because I think you're right, that's something that a lot of in-house counsel have to do. And there's obviously various templates, but, you know, sometimes there aren't that many. And I'm interested in your thoughts as someone that deals with NDAs. Do you have tips for folks that are drafting them in terms of what they should look like or things to make sure to include? You know, I think keeping it to one page, keeping it mutual, making it something to where the other side is not going to feel the need to negotiate with you, but that it meets all of your needs is the most important thing to me with an NDA. Making sure you're covered, but that you would also be okay if you were on the other side. And that way you don't need to worry about the back and forth associated with NDAs and you know that you're just both entering into the conversations with good faith and deciding to move forward and then having a services agreement that actually addresses how you're doing that. Gotcha. No, I think that's good. We've talked about some of the specific questions. What are some of your takeaways from the fact that you deal with these, see these questions over and over again? You know, one of the things that I find interesting about being a lawyer is that sometimes it seems like what we're doing is common sense. And then you remember you went to law school for three years to learn how to think this way. And so maybe it wasn't common sense. Maybe we just, our brains were morphed to think the way that they do now. And so I've come to realize that employees rely on us in the same way that we rely on them for their technical expertise. I would never try to start fixing my computer or drafting an SOW without the help of the technology department. And I would never try to do something complicated from a payment terms perspective perspective without involving our finance department. And so in the same way, they need to rely on us to make sure that the words of a contract or just the risk that they're taking on is actually what they think it is. And so even though some of the things they might say make you cringe, it allows you to establish best practices and to develop proactive relationships so that you hear some of these things up front rather than when it's too late to fix them. No, I think that's great. I think that's good advice. And I do think we tend to often take it for granted that, of course, everyone knows what we know as lawyers, but that's often that's often not the case. So, well, that that's a great glimpse at the challenges that we get on a day-to-day basis. I really appreciate you taking the time to go through those. Um, if our listeners are interested in hearing more or have questions that are spurred by uh, the topics we covered in the podcast, what's the easiest way for them to reach you? They can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I am there and would love to speak with anyone. Terrific. No, I appreciate it. Amy, thank you so much for that advice. And as a reminder to our listeners, you can subscribe to the In-House Roundhouse at iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Uh, You can also find all our previous episodes on the Womble Bond Dickinson website. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes. You can also check out some of the other upcoming recordings uh, that we've done here in Austin. Thank you for listening to the In-House Roundhouse. I'll see you at the next station.